All right, good morning, church. And uh, good morning to uh, all joining us uh, online, those that are here today. I want to begin by uh, sharing some, uh, some sad news regarding a longtime uh, key leader of our church. Uh, his name is Bill Martin. And uh, for the last several years, Bill has been in uh, declining health, and we received news yesterday that uh, Bill uh, went home to be with the Lord. And you maybe uh, knew him, maybe you did not, but Bill was, the, uh, was the, the, the chief leader when I candidated to, to come to our church. He had been the, a deacon and chairman of the deacons for many, many, many years. Uh, he, was the, he led the, the, the construction of this facility that we're in right now. Uh, he was a longtime member of the Twin Lakes uh, Camp Board, very, very kingdom-minded man. And uh, after a long season of declining health, he passed away yesterday. His wife, Barb, nothing short of amazing in her care for him over all of these years. And uh, they have children and grandchildren in our church. And we just want to pause for a moment and uh, honor him and honor his memory. And I would encourage you to be in prayer for God's comfort uh, to them. As we move into God's Word together now, uh, you may be wondering, why is Pastor Steve wearing a Greek soccer jersey? And uh, some of you probably are thinking, you know, he's so intentional about everything that he does. I'm sure there's some very deep and spiritual meaning behind the, uh, the Greece soccer jersey. And uh, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, you know, last, uh, yesterday was 4th of July, and perhaps he's honoring the, you know, the birthplace of democracy there in Athens in ancient Greece, and so it's an homage to, to that. You would be wrong. Perhaps you're thinking, uh, you know, it's probably because the New Testament was written in Greek, and, you know, he, he likes Greek, and so therefore he likes Greece, and he's sort of honoring uh, the Bible and the, the language of the New Testament, and, and you would be wrong. Uh, the reason I'm wearing this is that uh, this morning I'm preaching the outdoor service here in the parking lot, and it's going to be a little toasty. So that's why I'm wearing it. See, nothing too spiritual about that. Personal comfort, primarily. Well, friends, today we begin uh, about a month-long little mini-series that we're going to do here in the middle of the summer, uh, talking about what it means to follow Jesus at Bethel Church. The title of the uh, series is Discover or Rediscover, and there are a number of reasons that we, are, that we are doing this. One is that the world is a mess right now, have you noticed? Like this world is a total mess, and messes create confusion, and confusion is the devil's playground, and there is a lot of confusion right now in the world about, you know, what is, what is life about, and worldview, etc., and so... It seems like the devil is up to a great deal of mischief, and many Christians are losing sight of what really is important. And you know, what's really important doesn't change even if you're in the midst of a pandemic, which we are, or if you're in the midst of a personal crisis, or if there is some war going on or whatever. We need to be reminded of the main things in following Jesus, and that's what this series is gonna do. Bring us back, what are the main things? Let me get myself grounded here. Let me get myself oriented here. It is also important because the coronavirus has taken us out of our sort of normal rhythms of life. Things are so different right now, and this includes rhythms of worship. 
and other Christian gatherings, small groups, etc. And these are the things that nourish us in the sort of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month of life, and there has been so much disruption of that. And these, uh, when these things are altered, it's easy to get distracted. And when we're distracted from the things that nourish us, it's easily, easy to get discouraged. And I know that there are many of us today who are discouraged with the state of things right now in, in the world, in our country, in our state, maybe in our, in our homes. And so we're going to just do this series to just discover again what is this, like what are the important things? What does it mean to follow Jesus at Bethel Church? And today I'm kicking it off with uh, the role of the Bible, the role of truth at Bethel Church, the Bible at Bethel Church. You know, the functional church of your heart is wherever you turn for guidance, especially when the chips are down, especially when life is hard. The biggest church in America right now is the church of social media. And what a sad state of affairs it is when we turn to this place it is, it is strange how this has become a repository for so many people for how to look at things, what I'm supposed to think about things, how I'm supposed to live. You know, in the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there, does it make a sound? We could apply that these days. If, if anything happens in our life and we don't post about it, did it, did it actually happen? Does it actually, does it actually count? So many words online, you can just, I mean, they make it intentionally so you can just spend your whole time, uh, you know, scrolling and looking. So many words online. And friends, today what I want to say is the most important words are not online. The most important words are not new words. The most important words are old words. The most important words are the words that God has said. Just believing that God has spoken itself today is scandalous. Because if you believe that God has spoken something, it is to acknowledge that there is a transcendent God, and that is, means that there is a transcendent truth, and that means that there is accountability to this transcendent speaking, revealing God. This would require we humans to acknowledge an authority that is over us and an accountability to this deity. It also means that there is some interpretation of reality that, that rules them all, that there is, there is some truth that is absolute, and our society doesn't like that as well. One God and one truth, one ring to rule them all. No, human beings, we threw that ring into Mount Doom long ago, and we try to live now with the haunting questions that the human heart has when there is no sense of absolute transcendent truth. We have the same questions that people have had ever since the beginning of time. Uh, Questions of origin, questions of meaning, questions of of the future. This, this, This question of origin, meaning, and destiny. We all want these answered in our life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? What happens to me when I die? And you take transcendent truth out of that uh, worldview, and now we're just left to make it up. And online you see people just making it up, trying to explain these things without what God has said. But we are Christians, and we're a Christian church, and we, we believe that God has spoken. And one of the best things about being a Christian is we believe in truth. We believe in absolute 
truth. We believe that God's word is divine revelation that transcends time and culture and fads and the whims of people like us. We believe in truth and we believe truth is found wherever God has spoken because whatever he says is true. Now you might say, well, okay, where has God spoken exactly? What are you talking about here? Well, God has spoken in three specific realms. The first is the world. God spoke in the world. He spoke the world into existence, but more than that, he continues to speak through creation. This is Romans 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made, so that men are without excuse. This wonderful theme of how God speaks through uh, this world and, and how it reflects what he is like. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah 6, we talk about this a lot because this is one of my favorite themes. But to realize that God said, let there be light, and then boom, there was light. The power of God to speak reality into existence. Physicality suddenly became when God spoke, let there be light, let there be darkness, let, there be, let us make man in our image, and all these things God spoke, and he continues to speak to us in a kind of asymmetrical way through the beauty of the world around us. So God speaks through the world. Secondly, God has spoken through his son. So we have the world of God, we have the son of God. Jesus himself is the incarnate word of God. God. God speaks, spoke through Jesus. Here's how Hebrews says it. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Friends, Jesus is divine revelation. Jesus his teachings, divine teachings, his miracles, divine miracles, his, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ongoing work of intercession, all of these part of his divine life. There's so much we could say here on this, and we probably will on All About Him Sunday coming up. But the point of this message is the third realm that, that God has spoken. So we have the world of God, we have the Son of God, and thirdly, we have the Word of God. The Word of God. God is a speaking God. As, uh, as, as Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of his book titles, uh, he, is, he is there and he is not silent, is the title of the book. God, God is a speaking God. He is a revealing God. He wants to be known. He has spoken to us. And where has he spoken? Well, as the theologians call it, written revelation or special revelation, we believe the Bible is God's spoken, written word to us. Now, this message is not a collection or is not a, is not a, uh, a defense of the Bible as God's word. We could do that some other time. And if you'd like to read about that, there's many resources I'd recommend. Erwin Lutzer has a little book, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible, Check it out. That's not the point of this, of this message. But it, we, we're talking about what is the role of the Bible in the life of the, of, the, of, the, of the church. And we believe that the Bible 
is God's word, this collection of, of letters, stories, narratives, poems, so many different genres of literature we find in the Bible. By the way, did you know Bible, Bible is a, a word, the, the root of it, just, it just means book. And the Bible is, is a collection of writings, 39 books in, in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, 66 books in the Bible, written over a span of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors in three different languages. And you read through the Bible, and, and you could get confused because you read Genesis, kind of a historical account, and then maybe you lose your place, and you flip into Psalms, and you're like, man, this, this sounds like poetry, and indeed it is. And then, and then you flip into a, a prophet, and you're like, this is totally different. I don't understand it. And then you know, your, your child comes up and says, what is Matthew? What is this about? You get reading that, and it's like, that's a different thing. And then you get to Revelation, and it like blows your mind. And you're like, what is, you know, who would write a book like this? And the answer is God wrote a book. God wrote the Bible. But he used all of these different people to write exactly what he wanted to write. And the cohesion and the unity of the Bible, when you consider a millennium and a half of span of time writing it and all the different people that wrote it, and yet there is a unity of message, there's a unity of purpose, there is a, a melody that runs throughout the entire Bible. Get 40 people together and have them write about anything and see if you have any unity when you're all done. And Amazingly, we find this unity, an astonishing unity in the Bible. The Old Testament foreshadowing the New Testament. The New Testament completing the Old Testament. These together form the canon of Scripture. And they provide a sure foundation for life and for faith for God's people. Now I'm here today summarizing the Bible at Bethel Church with four different words. And here they are. Truth, authority, inspiration, and sufficiency. And I'm going to appeal to you that the role of the Bible at Bethel Church is just a, uh, an illustration of the role of the Bible in your home and the role of the Bible in the, in the life of every single human, Christ, or every single Christian, that is. So this is not just something, well, I hope the church does that and I'm going to go off. No, this is for all of us. The Bible is true. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is inspired, God's word. The Bible is sufficient. So let's walk through these and, uh, and understand this. And my heart, my desire today is, is not, I'm not introducing anything new here. We have been teaching this and practicing this for decades around here. But I do want to reinforce it and make sure that the roots of our church are firmly uh, grounded in the Bible as God's holy word. So let's get through these now. We begin with the first word, truth. Truth. John 17, Jesus is praying his famous high priestly prayer and he summarizes the role of the Bible with a very little phrase in that prayer. He says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. What's tricky here, of course, is how we define truth. 
We live in a day where we believe everybody gets to define their own truth, their own reality. What's true for me may not be true for you, and what's true for you doesn't need to be true for me. Uh, you know, and, and, and if, you, if you impose your, your truth on me, that's a microaggression, and I feel, I'm feeling something here that isn't right, and so don't, you know, we just all share our opinion, but we don't act like it matters to anybody else. The Bible comes along and couldn't be any more different. Like Pilate's response to Jesus in his interrogation of him, Jesus said that he came to bear witness to the truth. And the, Pilate, the Roman governor's uh, response summarizes humanity. He says this, what is truth? What is truth? And indeed, this is a huge question, particularly in our day, when any claim to truth, absolute truth for sure, is viewed as hubris and prideful. And who do you think you are to, to think that you have the truth? Our world denies any truth that claims to be truth for all times and everyone. So here's what I mean by truth, and I'm gonna let a man I never met, but I kind of friend, J.I. Packer, here's how he defines it. This is so good, listen to this. Truth in the Bible is a quality of person primarily and of propositions only secondarily. It means stability, reliability, firmness, trustworthiness. The quality of a person who is entirely self-consistent, sincere, realistic, undeceived. God is such a person. Truth in the sense of his nature. And he has not got it in him to be anything else. That is why he cannot lie. That is why his words to us are true and cannot be other than true. They are the index of reality. I love that sentence. They are the index of reality. They show us things as they really are and as they will be for us in the future according to whether we heed God's words to us or not. That's an awesome paragraph right there. And it explains why we so desperately need, we need the Bible. Because, you know, one of, one of my frustrations with wearing masks is my, 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 my glasses uh, steam up on me. In fact, before I get up here, I have to take it off a minute or two to let all the steam go away. I didn't do that one Sunday, and I got up, and I just, you know, the, the tech guys were like, his glasses are steamy. I, what do you do about it? I don't know. But we live our life so much, and our glasses are steamy in life, and we can't see things clearly. And one reason we desperately need the Bible is we live in a world of confusion and falsehood. The Bible, the Bible allows us to see things as they actually are. When I am seeing something biblically, I'm seeing it from God's perspective. I'm seeing it as it actually is. How valuable the word of God is to us. Satan, on the other hand, he's a liar. Everything Satan, Jesus said he's the father of lies. He's a deceiver. His words are deceptive and unreliable, just like the world's words are that way. But God's words are always consistent with his character. And because God is true, therefore everything he says is also true. And that is the connection that we have to make between God's written word and the character of God. How do we know God's word is true? Because God is true. And if he has said it, then you can take it to the bank. Or how do we used to say it, you know, you can, you can take it to the bank and smoke it. Did I mix, I messed that up somehow, I think. There's some phrase like that. Like you can just bank on that, uh, that it is true. God is true, all he says is true. Titus one, God who cannot lie, he can't lie. We can lie, 
right? We can lie, we can shade the truth, we can deceive, we can manipulate. We have all these things that we do with our words. God can't do any of those things because he is absolutely true. And therefore, because we know that he's true, this is reassuring to us that when I am in doubt or when I am in a sea of turmoil or when I am fearful, when I read God's word, I can know that it is true because the God who stands behind it is truth. Here's another thing about the Bible. It is always true. It's always true. You read a science book from like 300 years ago, there'd be all kinds of things in there. We go, that ain't true. Now the people that read it at the time, they, they thought it was true. But there's been discoveries and things, that ain't true. You know, you read, you read uh, you know, advice, political advice, marital advice from whatever, that ain't true anymore, that's not, that's not true anymore. That's how we say it. God's word is always true. It doesn't change in the, in the, in the whims of culture. It doesn't, it doesn't become true and then not true. It doesn't move in as a fad to be true and then it doesn't move in to be, no, it is always true. That's why we believe in absolute truth. We believe in, in transcendent truth. What God says is true for everybody, for all time, for all cultures. Now we believe there's truth found outside of the Bible so the biologist can look at something and, and say and observe it and he can speak things that are true and the sociologist can observe things and say things that are true and that's why when you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you medicine and you're like, I'm looking for a verse in the Bible that tells me I'm supposed to take prednisone. You're not gonna find a verse that says that in the Bible because the Bible doesn't address that directly. The Bible doesn't explain the Pythagorean theorem it doesn't explain how tadpoles reproduce. But where it speaks, it does so truthfully. And therefore, we as God's people and our church, we can rest and rely on God's word. What's Pastor Steve doing today? Pastor Steve's trying to exalt the Bible in all of our lives. To see it as for what it is, the, the holy word of God. What a blessing we have, it is true, the Bible is true. Here's the second word, is authority, okay? Second word is authority. It's one thing to say that something is true. It's another thing to submit to it. To have a heart posture to the Bible where I say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live in submission to what this book says. And you know, this is why there are many people, they view the 10 Commandments as the 10 Suggestions. This is a good idea. If it works for you, this might be something you want to consider. Good principles, good ideas. And yet commandment means what? Authority. Commandment means accountability. As an example of the difference between these two, I may know what the speed limit says, but do I view it as an authority over me or not? Now it goes without question that the speed limit moves from a suggestion to a commandment the moment I see the state trooper. And I instinctively, you know, I hit that brake. All of a sudden, authority comes to bear upon me. How many of you have slammed on the brakes only to find out that the Grand Victoria was, is a grandma driving uh, by it? You know, like, oh, I thought it was a cop. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a suggestion again, right? Well, the role of the Bible in relationship to the church is a very, very important one. 
And this has been debated over time. In fact, we have really three different uh, relationships of authority between the church and scripture or the Christian and scripture. Here's a little graphic that summarizes the three. There might be some people who, you know, would say that the church is, is over scripture. The church is an authority over scripture. I don't, I don't know of anybody that practices that, maybe some kooky cult somewhere. But uh, I, so that's at least logically an option. Then you have the church is equal to scripture. Now this is practiced by billions, millions, maybe billions of people. Uh, The ancient churches generally practice this. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, believes that uh, tradition, uh, the interpretation historically of the church on something is on equal plane with the authority of God's word. Okay, so there are a lot of people that practice the middle one. We are solidly in the third option, where we believe that scripture is an authority over us, over the church, over me personally, that we have a responsibility to do what it, to do what it says. You know, in the history of the church, you get to the 16th century, and the church had been practicing for a long time that, 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 that the scripture and the church are equal. And guess what had happened? All kinds of crazy things had happened. All kinds of man-made ideas and practices had rooted their way into the practice of the Western church. I could list some of these, and you would probably be sitting there going to yourself, where is that in the Bible? And you would be, you would be revealing your Protestant DNA, right? The fact that you would ask that question reveals that in your mind you think it matters what the Bible says and that we should be doing what the Bible tells us to do. Why? Because we see scripture as authority over the church and over everything else. If the Bible, uh, the Bible says it, that's, you know, I grew up singing the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, Bible. Some of you have heard that song before. Maybe that's one we should sing a little bit more. I remember 20 years ago, I had been at the church for two or three years, and we were in the process of revisioning our worship services, making some adjustments in style, instrumentation, etc. Uh, which was a little bit of a transition time that we had. And uh, I, I recall a, a, a leader in our church she, uh, told me the story that somebody else in the church had come to them and with a complaining spirit about it and that this leader had said to them, well, you should set up an appointment and go talk to Steve about that. And this person said, what good would that do? He would just ask me, where's that in the Bible? That is honestly one of the nicest things that I have ever heard in all my years. Where is that in the Bible? Pastor Steve cares about that? Like that's what you gotta bring to the table if you're gonna make some argument? I took it as a compliment. And indeed we should. Where is that in the Bible? Because if the Bible is the sole authority over us in matters of faith and practice, then we need to understand what it says. And as we define who we are as people and as a church to increasingly be a word-centered, word-guided people, 
right? We are filtering everything through the Bible. We're looking at the world around us and each other through the Bible because when we do, we know we are seeing things as they actually are. How about if I just give you another sort of, I don't know, per chance example of how this might work. Let's just say that I could open the Bible today and I found obscured, it was, it's been lost in the shuffle, a verse in the Bible that says, during a pandemic, wear a mask. I don't know about online, but it got quiet right here in the room. Or let's say the other way. Let's say, during a pandemic, make sure you don't wear a mask. Let's say I found a verse like that. Because I know that there are strong opinions on this subject right now. Would you care... Or are you of your opinion? You know, that, that's what they say about Dutch people. A Dutchman convinced against his will is of his opinion still. And there are a lot of church folk who, convinced against their will of something the Bible says, would still be of their opinion still. Why? Because their opinion is actually what is the authority in their life, the way they see it, instead of the way that God has described it. So would you, would, you, would you wear a mask if the Bible told you to? Would you not wear a mask if the Bible told you? Or how about this? Did you know what the Bible does say? That for a Christian, the other person's needs and interests should be more important than our own. Does that apply somehow? I'll just ask the question and leave it to your own application. Here's Isaiah 66, verse two. I, I came across this verse uh, some years ago, and it's just, it's such a wonderful picture of the kind of church and folks in the church that we are aspiring to. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. There is a sense for the Christian of reverence and a high view of scripture that trembles to do what it says, that desperately wants to please the author of the book by fulfilling as best we can what the book calls us to do, and that this is a sort of trembling thing. Do you see that sense of it in trembling? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. How we treat the Bible. You know, I don't even know if this is biblical or not, but I just... I try to treat my actual Bible with reverence. On my, on my book table at home, or my, my little end table where I read, you know, do devotions and things like that, sometimes you know, I'm, I'm drinking coffee or I'm snacking on something and I got the Bibles there. For some reason, I cannot, I, I cannot put my coffee mug on the Bible. I just can't rest it there. Like it's, I, in me, I'm like, it's the Word of God. I wanna treat the Word of God with respect. Now, I don't have a good verse for that part of it, and that's just me saying that, so I don't mean to legalize all of you on that point, but it's something in my heart. I, I want to tremble at the word. Here's the third word. It's authority. I'm sorry, that's the second word. Inspiration. 
Inspiration is the third word, and we could spend so much time on this because it's one of the most important doctrines in Christianity and therefore one of the most important in our church. But we believe that God is the source of every word in the Bible. Every word. Now by that we mean the original writings in the original text, which we don't have any of those. Okay? And I don't have time to get into how we can be totally confident that the manuscripts that we have and even the translations that we use are highly accurate, incredibly accurate to what those original manuscripts would have been. That's a different subject. But we believe that, that God is the source of every word. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16. This would be a good verse for all of us to memorize. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that the, that the church of God that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now the term inspired is a little bit misleading in the sense that it really, the, the text here is that God expired it, that he, that he spoke it out. And this is what we know about speech. It requires you to breathe out. You know, you can talk breathing in. I know where you it's nice to be you. We, uh, but it sounds weird, doesn't it? You, to, breathe, to speak, you, gotta, you, you take breath and you push it through outwardly. And that's the sense that, that the Bible, it, it began in the heart of God and he, he breathed it out and he spoke words and that the Bible is the expired, inspired word of God. Every bit of it. The inspiration of Scripture is the connection between what the authors wrote and the real source of Scripture. As I said, there were over 40 authors of, of, of these books and letters in, in the Bible. Well, how did they write in a way where they were writing what they wrote and yet what they wrote was exactly what God wanted? Here's a verse that explains how that happened, 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Was the Bible written by men, or was the Bible written by God? And the answer is both, both. When Paul went to write Corinthians, he sat down to write a letter to the church at Corinth. But in power that God alone has, what he wrote was exactly what God wanted him to write. Right down to, Jesus says, every jot and tittle, like the punctuation marks of the Old Testament, Jesus says, all of them are gonna be fulfilled, all of them. In fact, if you read much of like apologetics about inspiration of scripture, most people begin with the, the fact that Jesus believed the Bible was inspired by God. You say, oh, how do we know that? Let me give you one example. The Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, they come to Jesus and they question him about the resurrection. And Jesus' response, he says, he, he is the, uh, that, 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 that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. What did Jesus do in his argument there? He argued for the, for the resurrection based on the tense of the verb, am, present tense. 
He says that proves that there is a resurrection. Are you saying that inspiration is not just the words, but the tenses of the words that were written? That's what Jesus thought. That's what Jesus thought. And I would say that's what we should think as well. To think that every word, every tense, all of this inspired, sourced in Almighty God. Inspiration of Scripture, it's, an, it's a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. And we firmly believe it here at Bethel Church. Here's the fourth, final word. Sufficiency. Sufficiency. It's one thing to say that God has spoken and it's true and it's absolute and it is, it is inspired, but is it enough? I mean, we could say it was great for the time, but we need more, and so let's add to this now. Is the Bible enough, or should we be looking to other revelation uh, somehow in order to be the foundation of our lives in the church? Well, here's where the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture comes along and says that God's Word is complete. It lacks nothing that we actually need in life. And it is fully capable of providing truth to believe and to live the life which God has called us to live. So, I, you know, it's great to have devotionals. It's great to have Christian literature. It's great to, you know, have all these other, you know, there's so many uh, books and materials and blogs and all these other things. They're all great, and I write them myself. But do we need those other things? No. The Bible itself is sufficient. We don't, we don't need those other things to do what God and to understand who God is. The Bible is complete. Here's some verses for this. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Paul writes to Timothy, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This doctrine of sufficiency, maybe you've never heard it, but I'm, I'm gonna help you connect the dots here. It's all over in our church, all over. One is the priority of what we are doing right now. If you look at one of our worship services, we spend generally about 30 minutes praying, singing, uh, you know, celebrating, giving, the Lord's Supper, those sorts of things are all part of that roughly 30 minutes. And then we spend about 45 minutes, some of you say, say it seems longer than that, but it's actually only 45 minutes roughly, but we spend about 45 minutes preaching from God's word. You say, but I like the singing. Why can't we have more prayer time? Why all this preaching? Every time I go to church, it's preaching, preaching, preaching. Why is that? It's because of this doctrine that we're talking about right here. What, does, what, do, what do God's people need? They need to hear the word of God. They need to, to learn the word of God. This is why we actually preach the way we preach, which if you go here for any amount of time, you know the bread and butter of our church is to preach expositionally through books of the Bible. We currently are in Romans and have been for two and a half years. We're taking a little break here in July. But the bread and butter of our church is, okay, open your Bibles, here's the text, 
Here's what it, here, see how it's organized and here's why Paul wrote it the way he did and here's the context. Why do we do that? Because we want to understand what it meant when it was written by the person who wrote it. It's not what I think it meant, you know, what I, what I think or I'm going to use the words. In it. No, what did it mean from the author when he wrote it? And then secondly, how do we apply that to our lives? We begin with the text. I, re, I remember I had somebody one time said to me, Pastor Steve, you know what? Those application times in your messages are awesome. Why don't you just do those? In other words, skip the, skip the, uh, the, the you know, all the sort of study, uh, Bible study stuff. Let's just get to the, let's just get to dessert, right? Let's get to the application stuff. And you know what? There are many churches that kind of, that's how they do it. It's, you know, all you get is sort of the application stuff. All you get is dessert. You never get the meat and the potatoes, and we strive to be a meat and potatoes church with luscious strawberry pie to conclude. We practice what is known as expository preaching. You've heard that word so many times, but I'm just going to say it again. Because you might, God might call you to another community, and then you go to this other community, and you're kind of like, okay, uh, what are we looking for here? I want you to be looking for a church that is built upon the word of God and you get a sense from the service and the sermon that they have a high view of scripture. That the pastor is not just up here flapping his gums telling you his opinion on things. What I think about things does not matter. Can I say that again? What I think about things does not matter at all. What God thinks about it matters everything. My, my daughters, if I said, you know what, for dinner tonight, we're starting with dessert. Yay! You know what, you love that dessert so much. Why don't we just do dessert all the time? Yay! Is that good for them? No. No. And it's immaturity that simply wants to live on the cotton candy. And we desire to be a church that is maturing and growing and disciples that are, that are growing in depth of understanding and that requires the meat and the potatoes. So let's not get tired of the meat and the potatoes. I don't sense we are, I'm just saying right now. Let's not get tired of the meat and the potatoes. Let's enjoy some dessert and et cetera, but let us be a church that is serious about God's word and have appetites, here's another thing, have appetites that want that. Like how long could I go preaching the other way where you, before you'd be like, you know what, we need a new preacher. I hope it would not be very long before you would think we need a new preacher around here. I haven't had a good vegetable. I haven't had, I haven't had a good meat in three weeks. What's going on around here? Would you even notice or would you care? I hope that you would. Because a high view of scripture in a church, there is an expectation amongst the membership that when they gather, they are going to hear the word of God. Some of you say very nice things to me about sermons, etc., and I appreciate it very much. 
But I do want to emphasize preachers are nothing. Preachers are a dime a dozen. And you're, you're, you're super nice to me, and I do appreciate that. But what is a preacher? It's just a, it's just a, a conduit of truth from the Word of God to our hearts. By the Holy Spirit. This is Doctrine of Illumination. I don't have time for this. But the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God to make that Word alive where I want to conform to it. I want to be transformed by it. I want to live that way. I can shout. I can pound. I can illustrate. I can't make that happen in your heart. I prayed this morning before coming here. God, I, I need you to do all the things that matter this morning are all things that you do. I can't do it. Our church can't do it. But the Spirit of God can do it when he chooses to take his word and plant it deep in us. I pray that he would do that. And so what do we say about that if this is the role of God's word by his spirit through the proclamation of his word? We need more of it. We need more of it. Some people, some people say, but we have so much of it already. We have too much of this. And then they go home and watch six consecutive hours of NFL football. Not a problem at all. This is why our counseling ministries, our biblical counseling ministries, this is why the recovery ministries of our church are biblically based Recovery ministries. This is why we want our children's ministry to be a place where our children are learning and memorizing the Word of God. This is why our student ministries are, are, are built upon the Word of God and teaching them Christian worldview and how to view the world the way that God sees it. This is all flows from the sufficiency of the Bible. It's all that we need for life and godliness. All right, so again, quick review here. The four words that we believe, truthfulness, authority, inspiration, sufficiency, there are many others we could add to that, but then it would be the six-hour sermon, okay? But that's a good start for us. If we just do those things, how God would bless us, and we pray that he would. Now, I want to tell you a very quick story about how this is a watershed doctrine. You might think, oh, don't all churches believe this? No. No. Many churches within a couple miles, a mile of our church, would not agree with what I've just told you in this message. This is not a universally accepted approach to the Word of God, but it is a watershed issue for the church. And I'm going to give you one, uh, one example of this. Many of you, I'm sure, know the name Billy Graham, okay? Famous evangelist, died a couple years ago. Well, Billy Graham, when he was first starting out, was friends with a guy by the name of Charles Templeton. In fact, I think we have uh, pictures of them. Why don't we put that up, if we would? There's, so there's Billy and Charles, two pictures of them uh, together. They were really good friends. They would, uh, they would room together at the, at the Crusades. They both would preach. Charles Templeton was a, uh, by what I understand, was a very effective evangelist, and, and many people came to faith under his ministry, along with Billy Graham. Well, Charles Templeton decided that he needed a little bit more schooling. And so he went off to a seminary, unfortunately a liberal seminary, 
And before long, he wasn't believing the Bible was God's inspired word anymore. He wasn't believing that God created the world. He was writing Billy Graham and urging him to like realize, man, what you're, this is not, this is not true. Less than a decade later, he would declare himself an agnostic and he basically just disappeared off the scene. Billy Graham, on the other hand, didn't disappear off the, off the scene. Billy Graham changed the world. And here's what Billy Graham said in response to Charles Templeton, Templeton urging him to give up on God's word. He said this, I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching is power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me, there are results. So I've decided once for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. Templeton disappeared. Billy Graham changed the world. And I would urge us as a church, we cannot ever budge on this doctrine. It is foundational to everything else. This belief in God's word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray that that hearing has happened today and that the spirit of God has planted that truth in our hearts that we might leave and live this week conformed to what God has said. All praise to our revealing, speaking God. He is there. He is not silent. Amen. Amen. Amen.